you've heard this if you've ever flown before, a version of this. Uh, come over to the loudspeaker in the, in the airplane cabin. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign due to some unexpected turbulence. Please return to your seats and keep your seatbelts securely fastened around your waist. Thank you for your cooperation. Turbulence. <laughs> I, I, I do not like turbulence on an airplane. <laughs> I I I I've I know we have pilots here in the church and my father-in-law is a pilot and and you you I've been told you know it's nothing it's really not a big deal it's like hitting a little pothole in your car when you're driving down the road well, it doesn't feel like that to me you can tell me that but I tense up every time that plane starts shaking and rattling and dropping and I just it's unsettling to me uh, my car isn't hurling through the air at that speed and at that elevation so it's not the same I don't care what you say um, often turbulence, uh, the turbulence is weather related. There are storms in the area and, and so you can see the clouds and you can kind of expect that we're going to be flying through this, uh, this line of thunderstorms and so, okay, they try to get above it or whatever, but you're, you're going to have some turbulence or it's connected with the jet stream and, you know, you can see how, uh, they can chart the jet stream and the flow of the jet stream and, and, and so the pilots know there's gonna be a pocket or a zone of turbulence ahead and, and so they can anticipate it. Uh, and when I, whether, though whenever I hear them say, yeah, we're, we're expecting some turbulence ahead, we're gonna need you to return to your seat, I'm always convinced that's just because it's helping the flight attendant serve drinks and meals. They just want the aisles cleared. And then they're just up there messing with the stick just to make it feel like turbulence, but. So if pilots correct me if, that, if that's, that's my theory. Uh, but they know it's coming. They, 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 at times they know it's coming. Other pilots in the area can report and say, hey, there's some turbulence up here. So they prepare the passengers and crew. They, they, they get through the minor little air bumps, and then they land and arrive safely at the destination. No big deal. But sometimes there, there is severe uh, turbulence and it and it's the kind that come seems to come out of nowhere. They call it clear air turbulence. There are no visual clues to alert it. No 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 foreboding you know thunder thunder clouds in the area. No tropical system that's swirling around where you can anticipate it. It it, it can't be detected by radar and there's no really good way to forecast this kind of turbulence. But it does happen and it can be very dangerous. In 1997, I just Looking examples of this, uh, United Airlines flight from Tokyo, Japan, headed to Honolulu. It, it encountered uh, severe, unexpected, this clear air turbulence, and it resulted in one death and a hundred injuries. Many of them very severe, like broken necks and backs and and uh, limbs. And and anybody who wasn't fastened in their seat when they hit that unexpected clear air turbulence, it, they went crashing into the overhead luggage compartments. And 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 as the plane shook violently, it lost I think a thousand feet of altitude in just a very short period of time. And and so the, but those those terrifying few minutes of a uh, few moments of chaos, they they quote came out of nowhere. I mean, nobody expected. There was no storm around. They're just flying, and, and then it just goes crazy. There was some turbulence, but couldn't be seen or anticipated. I just, all right, connecting it to us. Sometimes our lives can encounter uh, clear air turbulence. Maybe you're there today, or you've certainly been there before. Things seem to be going along just fine. 
We see no threatening storms around us, no dark and foreboding clouds that, that, that have us uneasy and anticipating something bad about to happen. There, yeah, there are little, there, there are little bumps and there are little tremors all the time and little troubles in our lives and every now and then, but nothing too troubling. Then all of a sudden, quote, out of nowhere, we're violently shaken. And your, your soul, your, your, your whole life is just thrown into turmoil because of something that's come in and it's just shaken your life. And maybe it's the results from what you thought were just routine medical tests. You get a physical and then your doctor says, I have bad news. Maybe it's a sheriff's deputy standing on your front porch late one night and you can see on his face he has something to tell you that you don't want to hear. Maybe it's a pink slip, it's your job. Maybe it's a career-ending sports injury for a young person that has ambitions and they saw their life going one way and then ankle, a knee, and it's done. Maybe it's a sudden tragic death of someone you love, a spouse, a child, a parent. Sometimes the turbulence is severe, but it doesn't come on suddenly and and violently, instead it grows slowly but surely over time, but it is no less severe and no less awful. Maybe it's a crumbling marriage or a wayward child. Either way, it's not what you expected your life to look like. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So what happened? And more importantly, how do you go on when that comes, when you encounter those, that kind of turbulence? Well, enter John chapter 14. John 14. The disciples have just encountered clear air turbulence. That's where we find them in this passage. They were smooth sailing with Jesus. Everything seemed to be going well. The last miracle they saw Jesus perform was raising Lazarus from the dead. It's incredible. And so here they are. They, 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 this guy, he can't be stopped. We've hitched our wagon to, to, this, to a winner here. And so we're disciples of this master who can raise dead people to life. Nothing can stop him. Everything looks great. Just hours before Jesus has gathered with his disciples in this upper room, they're walking into Jerusalem to the sounds of crowds cheering and shouting out, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! And the palm branches are laying down and, and everything's, you're just thinking, this is, this is incredible. All that he said about being the Messiah and the King, it's, it's all happening and we're, we're seeing this with our own eyes. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, there have been minor turbulence in their time with Jesus over these last three years. Little bumps along the way and little tremors. You, you know, when, when there were threats by the religious leaders, when there were these kind of gloomy predictions that Jesus made about suffering and maybe dying. and There were rebukes at times and there were expectations that they had. Of, of what it would look like to follow Jesus, and sometimes those weren't met by Christ. And but now everything's looking up, clear skies. It's bright, bright, sunshiny day. This is good. But then they hit unexpected turbulence. The the the, the, the discipleship dreamliner. One of these days, I hope to fly on one of those things. I keep reading about them. One, well, this this dreamliner of discipleship they're flying on. It's severely shaken. And they don't see it coming. It seems, seems like it's going to come apart. It's going to crash. 
My, my opening illustration here about turbulence and the pilot not expecting it, it breaks down here because Jesus is the pilot. And he, he knows it's coming. He is not surprised by these turbulence. He has the forecast. He knows what's, 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 what's happening. Nothing takes him by surprise. But his disciples, his passengers, they have no clue. They don't see it coming. Everything is going just as planned. Everything's going as they hope. They're filled with jubilation. They're, they're, they're trying to plan out what their new life is going to be like with this king and this kingdom and, and where they're going to sit at the table and who's going to rule where and what this, is, this, this amazing life is going to be like with Jesus as their master and as their king in this new era. And then Jesus pilots them right into trouble. Shaking. What was it that was so troubling to the disciples? What, what was it? Well, just think of what we've already seen just in recent weeks here. First thing is their leader is troubled. This is shaking them. Verse 27 of John 12, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. Same word. Verse 21 of chapter 13, After saying these things about Judas, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So when your master is shaken, the one that you've left everything to follow... If you see him shaken, you're shaken. That's unsettling. I mean, just, again, thinking of flights encountering turbulence, I, I know that flight attendants have to be trained when, you, when, when, you, when there, there is a turbulence that's encountered while you're flying along. They're probably not supposed to have looks of panic. They're probably just supposed to be calm and smile and everything's fine. And because if they show panic, what does that do for the passengers? They're, they're freaking out. I've had one time of severe turbulence like that, and I remember that was the first time, that was the only time I ever remember seeing the flight attendant get scared, and they're just hanging on, and that freaked me out. Um, but here, Jesus' own heart is in holy tur- turmoil. It's not, it's not the unrest of unbelief, it's the unrest that comes from this holy love. He knows what's coming, and, 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 he, and, and yet, but again, it's, it's visible to his disciples. They see their master troubled, so that's troubling to them. That's part of the turbulence. Second, Jesus just keeps talking about his death. And, and, and just in recent days, it just is, it picks up. He's talking about his hour, his time, his suffering. He will suffer. He will be lifted up in death. But, but, but you said you were the eternal word, Jesus. What about all those claims of a of, of Messiah and, 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 and here, Jesus, we just walked into Jerusalem. Everybody loves you. They're singing your praises. They're cheering for you. Everything. How, how can you say this? You're going to die? Surely you're mistaken. Third, Jesus won't be with them much longer. Saw this last time. Verse 33, John 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and, as, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I mean, to men who, again, who have left everything to follow Jesus, to, 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 to be told that he's about to leave them is absolutely devastating. Be like the commander of his army, leading his troops into battle, and just when the battle's really picking up, and in, the, in its most intense time, this helicopter comes in and, and evacuates the commander out, and, and, and okay, y'all, fight now. That's not at all what's happening. Because <laughs> in reality, Jesus is, is the one that's going to fight the battle for them. But that's what it feels like to the disciples. 
You mean you're leaving? We can't go? Well, suffering, dying, and you're, you're departing, and we can't go with you? They love Jesus. The thought of him de- departing is, is just unbearable to them. And again, how could he be the Messiah if he's leaving? How is he going to redeem Israel from afar? Because in their mind, they're thinking, just rule now. Where are we going to sit in the kingdom? Right now. That's all they're thinking. And if all this weren't enough, that's enough. That's pretty strong turbulence right there. But if that weren't enough, the disciples might have comforted themselves with the thought, something like this, that, you know, regardless of what may happen to you, Jesus, we will still love you. And we will be faithful to you and to your memory forever. We won't abandon you. But that's not going to be the case either. And Jesus has just told them this. Again, this is part of the turbulence. Jesus said to them, one of you will betray me. Verse 21 of chapter 13. One of the twelve. One of his inner circle. His closest companions. And they don't know who it is because, because no, it can't be expected. This is his closest friends. Only John and Jesus know. He says, one of, one of you will betray me. And then also, lastly, Peter will be disloyal to Jesus. Jesus just told them this. And soon, verse 36, chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And this wouldn't have just shaken Peter. This would have shaken all the disciples. I mean, Peter was, yeah, he stuck his foot in his mouth a lot, but he was unquestionably loyal to Jesus. More than the others, I would say. And so if he was going to deny Jesus, what would that mean for the rest of them? What, what hope would they have of, of hanging in there with Christ when all of this starts to unravel? And so all these factors, and there were more than, than what I've mentioned, but all these factors play into that, what, what created this scenario, of this severe and unexpected turbulence for the disciples. They're in turmoil, they're scared, they're shaking. It's very evident to Jesus. He knows the trouble that their hearts are in as they're, as they're taking all this in. So what does he do? He comforts them with these words. And I just, just say, brothers and sisters, if you're here today and your heart is troubled and you come in and you're shaking and you're scared and something has entered into your life that you did not expect, maybe recently or maybe it's been this slow growing thing, but you look back and you say, what happened? How did I get here? If, if that's you this morning, Jesus speaks to you today. And he says to you, little children, don't let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let, let those words of Christ just settle on your soul today as we, as we unpack this. But he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus isn't saying, and the grammar indicates this, he's not saying there could be some time in the future, maybe near, maybe far, when your hearts may become troubled because of something that enters into your life. So if that time ever comes, I want you to file what I'm about to say away, because you may need this, may be helpful later. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the language indicates, stop letting your hearts be troubled. They're already in turmoil. They're, 
their whole world is just turned upside down. They've been just, they've been, you know, expecting to see a, a slow pitch softball come out of the batting cage, and instead they've seen this 90 mi- 95 mile per hour fastball come high and tight right at him. And they're just, they're just staggered. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, stop, stop letting your hearts be troubled. In the, in the core of your being, in your heart, in mission control, where feelings and faith uh, c- c- converge, they're being tossed and shaken right there. He says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's easy, right? Quit whining. Trust God. Does it sound simplistic to you? Is that, is that what Jesus is saying? Just, just believe. Just believe more. And you're thinking, with all that I'm going through, just believe? Listen, Jesus isn't some kind of Epicurean. That's not what Christianity is. Jesus doesn't promote escapism here. This, with Epicureans, they, 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 they want this freedom from, from, the, the, from anxiety or mental pain and just kind of this denial of the reality of suffering. He's, he's not expressing some kind of Bob Marley type of sentiment. Don't worry about a thing. Every little thing's going to be all right. And that kind of sentiment, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus says here is not trite. Because Jesus is not trite. God is not trite. Jesus is in agony as He says this. His own soul is troubled. He sees the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows He's about to carry the sin of the world on His shoulders. He knows He's going to face the fierce wrath of God in our place for our sin. He's going to be forsaken by the Father in our place so that we can have righteousness and have forgiveness and have redemption and atonement can be made for our sin. He knows that's coming. He's not, this is not flippant. He's using his words very carefully and they carry tremendous weight and Jesus will show that, the, that they're a solid ground that these exhortations are resting upon. And we'll see that this morning. And so before you write these words off as being sympathetic and naive and impractical and, and out of touch, I want you to consider whether you've really applied these words to the troubles in your life. I don't say that as a scold. But I, I will say just... These words have given tremendous comfort to countless Christians over the last 2,000 years who are in some horrific situations. And so before you shrug them off, consider whether you've truly applied them to your own troubled heart. And the short answer is, what is the answer to troubled hearts? And again, this is not a trite Sunday school answer, but it is, it is true and it is significant. It's Jesus. It's Christ. It's not a few tips. It's not a self-help program. It's not, it's not some little principles. It's not a six-step plan. It's not a book. It's not a sermon or a sermon series. It's Christ. It's a person. And so... Troubled hearts, brothers and sisters, they're comforted by Christ. And so that's what we're going to see this week and account on it next week. This is not going to happen. We're not going to be able to get through this whole passage today. Um, But we're going to get as far as we can. 
First thing that we'll say is this. How are troubled hearts comforted by Christ? Troubled hearts are comforted by the person of Jesus Christ. By the person of Christ. Who He is. His his nature. And so, look again, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Now, depending on what English version of the Bible you're using this morning... You, you, what, what I read may look uh, may sound different from what you saw when you uh, looked along as Paul read um, verse one and as I read a moment ago. There are actually several legitimate ways to translate um, th- this verse because in Greek the verb believe and this is true with most uh, Greek verbs the imperative and the indicative form are are the same. Uh, so you, the context is going to say so. Whether, whether Jesus is issuing a command, an imperative, or whether he's just making a statement, uh, that indicative form, you, you have to determine. And so you could translate them both as indicatives. You believe in God, you also believe in me. That's one. That's a legitimate way to translate this. You could also translate the first as an indicative and the second as an imperative. You believe in God, believe in me also. And some of your versions probably say that. The NIV, I think, and the King James, New King James. Or you could translate them both as imperatives. Believe in God, also believe in me. And, I, and that's how most translations treat this. And that seems to me to fit the context best here. But however you translate it, I just, I'm just saying that because I don't want you to be thrown off like, man, what Bible is he reading from? It's not what my says. There's really no difference in essential meaning because however you translate it, Jesus is claiming to be exactly on the same level of God when it comes to faith. You and, and, and so if you trust in God, you, you need to trust Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus, you're trusting God. And we'll come back, we'll come back to those commands in a minute. I want you to jump back down to verse seven, and we're going to go ahead and take these verses here, and then we'll come back to verse two. And I'll show you why. Are, these are verses that are showing us the nature, the person who Jesus is. Verse seven, "If you had known me, you would have known my Father also." From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about different words for know. There's a couple main different words in the Greek language for, for know, and they, they don't show up in the English. They're translated the same, and that's, that's fine. But they're here again. And so since we talked about it a couple weeks, I just want to draw your attention to it. If you had known me, that's gnosko, that's that intimate experiential knowledge, really knowing and, and full in experiential knowledge. If you had known me like that, you would have known, that's simple knowledge. You would have just known the truth about my father also. From now on though, you do know experiential knowledge, him and have seen him. And so, so Jesus says to, to truly know Jesus is to know the Father. <laughs> to see Jesus is to see the Father. You, you can't separate faith in God from faith in Jesus. See, I believe in God, I just, I just don't believe in Jesus. Well, you don't believe in God. He's saying, if you truly believe me, if you truly know me, you know the Father. The disciples still don't get it. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So he wants some vision, some vision of God like Moses on Mount Sinai. Show, show us, show yourself God. Show us the Father. Something, he wants something that will sustain the disciples long after Jesus is gone. Maybe, maybe they build some monument on the side. If we can have this, this, this amazing display of the Father, if the curtains can be back and we can just see the Father, and, oh, that'll be enough. And, and so, 
Now, we realize Philip's request isn't really that appropriate, but I'm glad he makes it because it, it gives Jesus this, this opportunity to make his claim even clearer. He, he alone reveals the Father. And so he said to him, verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? I don't think I even need to tell you which version of no this is right here. This is that gnosko, experiential knowledge. You don't, you don't really, really know me. He's asking the question. That's it's clear because you're asking to see the Father, and I and the Father are one. How many? I've said this so many times to you. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And he goes on to emphasize this intimate union he has with the Father. His words and his works show this, this union. Verse 10, do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the words, the works, everything testifies to this union that Jesus has with the Father. Now this is what I want you to see though. What is the context of all of this? What's going, what's going on here? Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus doing a little winterum systematic theology class, a little one-week intensive course with the disciples, a little seminary training? This is deep Trinitarian theology. And we're going to get more of it in John 14. We were talking about this in our elder meeting prayer time this morning. Deep Trinitarian theology. But he's not simply trying to, to stimulate the curious minds of the disciples. He's trying to calm the troubled hearts of the disciples. And that's important to see. And, and one of the things this shows, theology is not impractical. It, it, I know it can be taught in ways that are cold and, and bland to detach from real life, and that's unfortunate because it gives theology a bad name. But, but if your heart is troubled today, if you're experiencing severe and unexpected turbulence, or if you're, and you will at some point in your life, listen to me. What Jesus is saying, God the Father, God the Son, they team up together with God the Holy Spirit, as we'll see later in this chapter, and they do so for the solace of your soul. The Trinity is working for your comfort. I don't mean just so you can be comfortable and get what you want and no problems in life, but I'm saying in the pain, in the sorrow, in the turbulence, Father, Son, Spirit working for your comfort. That's, that's incredible. The, and and what, what I'm saying is the, the nature of Jesus, His, his divine personhood is, is, is help for your trembling heart today. You think about that. Jesus is not some sympathetic but impotent kind of religious idea or concept. No, He is a real divine person. He is the powerful divine high priest who is, who is able to sympathize with you in your weakness and in your sorrow. And so Jesus says, believe me. Trust me. Have confidence in me. Faith is only as powerful as its object 
and the object of our faith is one with the Father. He's God. So Jesus says, trust me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. And the faith, their faith isn't to rest on their ability to know exactly what's going on and why things are happening in their life. Their faith is to rest simply on Christ and who He is. Now I said we come back to those twin commands and, and I just want to emphasize one thing before we move on. And I take them as commands in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. A more literal reading of these would be something like this. Because it, they're present tense imperatives, meaning they're continuous action. So the, the idea is, is continue trusting in God. Also in me, continue trusting. Jesus isn't asking them to start believing in Him, but to keep on believing. Now they're believers, they're, they're already born again, they've trusted in Christ for eternal life, but for the sake of their troubled hearts, Jesus says, continue, continue to trust, continue trusting in Me. Continue trusting in God. So troubled hearts, they're comforted by the very person of Christ. Second, troubled hearts are comforted by the preparation of Christ. Preparation of Christ. I'm all about alliterated outlines these two weeks here, so just get ready. Preparation. Preparation demonstrates love and care, doesn't it? I mean, in a very practical way. I remember when we moved to Baraka, it's been almost 15 years now. We were coming from California. We had little Callie in tow and, and just a baby and... And we're, we'd never been to Georgia. We didn't know anybody here. We didn't have family here. Uh, we had no connections at all east of the Mississippi River before we uh, came to Baraka. And so we came and, and we showed up with our U-Haul truck and, 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 and what? You guys prepared for us. You prepared. You, there were people that were there to help us unload. The Dials hosted us that first night in their, their own house before we moved in. And, and you had meals and you had... At, you know, maps, you know what a map is, students. It's something that's a paper thing that you used to use and get around and information about the community. And, 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 and we, we were, our pantry and fridge, there was, there was provision made there. And you prepared for us. And what did that do? It showed to us you cared for us. You, you demonstrated love. And the bells just showed up back from Bosnia. And I think there were, there were people living in your house. I mean, they've claimed squatters' rights, the Flintoffs over here. And, and, uh, but, but no, there were, I, I think there were groceries and toys and provisions that were made and helping you get set up in a vehicle. And I, it just shows love as opposed to them showing at the airport and nobody's there. I mean, there were people there with balloons and we were at the wrong place, but we were there. And uh, uh, so maybe we could have prepared a little more for you and figure out where you're coming in. But, um, but, but if, if you just showed up, nobody's there, and you have to call us and say, oh, yeah, I, I got an errand to run, but then I can come get you and show up, and there's nothing, the lights aren't, the power's not even turned on in the house, and nothing to eat, it's late at night, and you've got to figure out how you're going to get to the grocery store, call Uber, and find a, find a way to get to some groceries. And That's not love. Preparation shows love. And, and, and so um, all this preparation... Again, it shows concern. And so the disciples, they hit turbulence. Jesus is telling them he's going to die. He's going to depart from them soon. And he's going away. And where he goes, they can't come. But Jesus shows love for them by explaining the preparation that he's made for them. He's pointing them 
to heaven. He's prepared a place. So verse 2, back to verse 2. Let not your hearts be troubled, verse 1. Keep trusting in God. Keep trusting in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. One house, many rooms. I know the King James it mansions is how it's translated. The picture, though, is not a large city with all these single-family mansions sprinkled around with you know, five-acre estates or something like that. It's one large house, many dwelling places. Now, Passes. You can't picture some old Soviet-style, you know, block uh, apartments in Russia or something like that. I don't think it's some drab concrete, uh, you know, little compartments for people to live. That's not it. I think a better word for us, maybe to, in our mind, something like suites. This is not a Motel 6 little compartment hotel room. This is a presidential suite. In my father's house are many, many suites. If it, if it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The expected answer is no. Another acceptable translation, I think it's a preferred translation of this, it's it's a New American Standard, how they translate it. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let me just offer a few comforting truths that come from these two verses here. One is this. Heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. I don't say that because a kid you know, had a little vacation to heaven and came back and wrote and sold books about this. I'm not trying to mock that, but I kind of am. Uh, it's real because Jesus says so. And it's not, it's not some immaterial state of mind or some feeling. It's not a dreamland with little fluffy clouds. It's a real place. It's real. Second, going to heaven is like going home. It's a house. It's, I know I use the example of Motel 6 and the presidential suite, but it's not, it's not a hotel. It's, it's a home. It's God's house. His children live with Him in His house. It's not, it's not like traveling to a foreign country and, and, and you don't know the language, you don't know the geography, you don't know the people, you don't know the customs and the food and everything's strange and you're never really settled and you're always a little uneasy, you're suspicious and try, not sure what you're supposed to do and what you're, how you're supposed to dress and what you're supposed to eat and what the customs are and you're temporary living out of a suitcase. That's not it. Going to have, going, when we go to heaven, it will be like going home. This is where we belong. It's, it's going to be this familiar, comfortable place where you're welcomed by a Father who loves you and by brothers and sisters who know you. Right? That's what it's like. Third, there's room in heaven for you. There's plenty of room. His house is big. Now, some of you grew up in my generation is in church. You're thinking of an audio adrenaline song. Big, big house with lots and lots of room. I'm not going to vouch for any other lyrics of that song. Um, but Jesus makes it clear there is plenty of room. There are many, many suites. He won't run out of space. There's a place for everyone who trusts in Christ. And it won't be crammed. And then, fourth, Jesus has prepared this place. He's opened the way. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, don't, don't picture... I think I grew up with this kind of mind when I would hear verses. Uh, picture Jesus with a tool belt or something like that, a hard hat, and 
And Jesus is, is working tirelessly to, to, you know, heaven's kind of in disrepair and it's this work zone with just stuff everywhere and he's trying to, trying to get, trying to get that CO in time for us and, and getting everything ready for us to, to enter there. That's not, that's not the picture. I mean, he created the heavens and the earth with word. So he doesn't need 2,000 years to build heaven. Or, you know, or, or from, from on, however long, until he tarries. That's not it. I just read a commentary. I think this is from the Tyndale Commentary. I think it sums this up well and, and points us in the direction of what Jesus is saying here. It says, When Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you, we should not think of him returning to heaven and having arrived there, setting about the construction of rooms for his disciples to occupy, a task he has now been occupied with for some 2,000 years. Rather, we should recognize that it was by His very going, by His betrayal, crucifixion, and exaltation, that He made it possible for us to dwell in the presence of God. The imminent departure of Jesus, which so troubled the hearts of disciples, was in fact for their benefit. And so that's, that's what He's saying. Christ's going is the preparation. His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit... It, 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 it's what makes this reunion possible. Without that, there would be no place in heaven for us. He's saying, I, I go and prepare a place for you. And again, remember the context of Jesus' words. He's not just teasing our imagination about heaven. He's not trying to support the, kind of the heaven tourism genre of books in our day. He's saying these things to comfort us. To steady the hearts of his followers when they're troubled. What sweet comfort thoughts of heaven are for disciples of Jesus Christ, aren't they? For those in particular who encounter severe and unexpected turbulence in life, and all, everything seems out of order, and everything seems turned upside down, and chaotic, and confusing, and, and insecure, and, and yet we have this. This, this, this heaven that's just calling us. We have a home that's prepared for us. And it's, it's certain. It's untouchable. It's ours. That doesn't make the pain go away. That's, it's not to minimize the real awful suffering that we face in this world that's, and that you may be enduring this morning. But the hope of heaven is, is this lullaby, lullaby that's sung by God softly into our ears. Again, a lullaby doesn't make the pain stop for a child, but it gives comfort. It gives help. It calms them. Helps them endure whatever pain they're going through. Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. That's, that's it, Paul's saying. It's this tension. They're real sufferings. But there's this weight of glory it's coming, and it draws our hearts to Him, and it gives us comfort. J.C. Ryle, I think this quote may be on the screen. He said, a few more sicknesses, and all will be over. A few more funerals, and our funeral will take place. A few more storms and tossings, and we shall be safe in harbor. We travel towards a world where there is no more sickness, where parting and pain and crying and mourning are done with forevermore. That's a good prospect. Revelation tells us the last enemy, death, will be destroyed. Death will die and be cast into the lake of fire. And Revelation 21.4 of the new heavens and the new earth, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Dear Christian, your best life is not now. Your best life is later. And this thought is not, this is not, you know, I hear people say you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That's foolishness. For the believer, the hope of heaven, it gives us the, the ability to, to, to know comfort now in the real suffering we endure. One day, we, what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. Death will be swallowed up in victory, Paul says. And again, I'm not saying naively that, that the reality of heaven eliminates the pain you're experiencing right now. But it should give you courage to endure with hope. Spurgeon said, encouraging Christians to think often of heaven. Christian, meditate much on heaven. He will help you to press on. The veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to the world of bliss. Well, is that, is that true? Can we really trust that heaven is really real, though? How do we, should we be staking our lives on this hope? And so I want, you, I want to imagine, and I, just for a moment, we're clearly not going to get very far this morning. Uh, not, not as far as I even hoped we would. But I'm, I'm going to imagine, I'm, I have the privilege of walking but with Jesus of Nazareth for three years, like the disciples, physically. And so I, I was there when he turned water into wine. I saw it with my own eyes. And, and I was in the boat when it was about to capsize, and Jesus said, be still. And it was as smooth as glass. And, and I was there in the storm and looked outside of the boat and when, when, when through that fog I saw Christ approaching, a, walking on water. And I was there when he took a couple of, of fish and a few pieces of bread and broke them and gave thanks and fed 10,000 plus people with him. And I was there when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And I was there when he, he, he made the paralytic walk. And I was there when he healed the man who was born blind and so he could see. And I was there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Conquering death, I saw it. So imagine that I was able to see all those things and hear all those things and experience all those things and I come up to Jesus and, and have this conversation with Him. I say, Jesus, your, your teaching is incredible and your power is just crazy. It's amazing what you have done and I've seen it and I've witnessed it. But the question that haunts me is this. And it is... Especially as you talk about dying and about going away. And it's, a, it's an age-old question. It's as old as man. And, 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 and it's the question Job raised. Lord, if a man dies, will he live? Jesus, I, I want so much to believe that life goes beyond the grave. Goes on beyond the grave. But at the same time, Lord, I know that just because I want something doesn't mean, want to believe something doesn't mean that it's really true. And then Jesus says to me, speaks to that troubled heart that's in turmoil. He says, Justin, if it were not so, if this were not really true, if this was just some kind of myth, I would have told you so. You see that little phrase? It's tucked right in there. Verse 2. If it were not so, I would have told you. The reality, Justin, is in my father's house, there are many rooms, many suites. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I I would have told you. 
So he's comforting his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself. It's done. Your reservation is secure. You know, you go on long road trips and you have to stay in a hotel overnight, which is never a pleasant thing, but you go and... And, but after driving all day, uh, we've had these experiences and holidays, especially when everything's full. If, if we know there's a reservation, or a, we made a reservation, we planned ahead, we have a hotel room waiting for us in Vicksburg, Mississippi, or wherever it is. Oh, that's so good. It's so good to walk up to that desk after being tired and to say, yes, we have your room, room ready, Mr. Culbertson. Like, oh, thank you. That's so, those are sweet words. We're tired. And here, our reservation is secure. Jesus promises if you believe in him, you have a confirmed reservation in heaven. No you know, computers crashing and losing a reservation. It doesn't happen. It, 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 your, your suite in heaven is secure. It's reserved for you. And that gives us comfort. It doesn't make it all go away. It doesn't make the trouble disappear. Uh, the sting of death is removed, and I'm not afraid to die. But I don't like the thought of dying. Um, it's not that I'm afraid or worried about that last breath. It's those other breaths that lead up to the last, last one that are oftentimes very painful. And what that transition is like. Um, but, but the way... But, but, but I, I can't wait to enter my father's house. <laughs> and I know you say the same. I, but the way is through the valley of the shadow of death. And which can be a very frightening place. And if all we see is that horrid face of death in front of us, then, then our hearts will be nothing but trouble, but the sting of death is gone because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so we have, we have folks in our flock walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Even I mean, all of us are in a sense, but we have some that really feel it. I'm like Jody Parrish, and we have others. But I know she, she should be sitting right here in the front row. And visiting her last week, there's living hope. Living hope. The cancer is awful. Death is ugly, painful. But oh, to be with Christ. That's got hope for troubled hearts. Third comfort, and I'm just going to be able to state it. We'll pick up here. Troubled hearts are comforted by the presence of Christ. By the presence of Christ. If I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again and will take you to that place. Is that what Jesus says? That's what we expect him to say. But he doesn't say that. He, he says something far more comforting. If I, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. A little preposition there is, 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 is before, face to face, in the face of Christ. And there, where I am, you may be also. He's not satisfied with the idea of simply bringing us to heaven. He wants us there in his embrace, face to face with him. And that, that is tremendous hope. For, for troubled hearts. Well, we're going to... Right, this is, we'll pick up next week. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. It means that we can do something about our troubled hearts. It's a command. There's, there's some volitional control we have whether we obey that command or not. We're, we're not passive victims of how we feel. We can do something about our troubled hearts. And even better, we can turn to someone. We can turn to Christ. And so, our hearts don't have to stay troubled. And you know why? Because Jesus' heart was troubled on our behalf. He 
He endured trouble. His soul was troubled. Not like ours in unbelief, but his soul was troubled in love for us. And he, as he approached the cross, so that we don't have to be troubled. He prepared the place. He prepared the way for us. And so if your heart is troubled today, if your soul is in turmoil, if you're experiencing severe and unexpected turbulence in your life, before turning to medication, before uh, laying on a leather couch, before turning to the self-help section or searching the internet for, for, for help, do something radical. Just really lay hold of what Christ is saying here. Keep trusting in God. Keep trusting in Jesus. In His Father's house, there are many sweets. If it weren't so, He would have told you. And He goes to prepare a place for you. And if he goes to prepare a place for you, he will come again and he will take you to himself. That where he is, you will be forever. And he himself is the way. And he is the truth. And he is the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Let's pray. Father, would you steady our hearts? Lord, you know you know what folks are walking through today. You know what how far we should have gotten this message. Um, and so I pray that maybe, maybe it's just three truths that we could, is all we can kind of begin to digest today because of the turmoil. But Lord, use, use these words, not of my words or the, some illustration, but let your words really sink deep into souls today, God, and give comfort and help to hearts in turmoil today. And stabilize us, God. Prepare us for what may come. And, and we don't know. We can't anticipate the troubles that will come, but we can anticipate that there are things that do not change. In Christ, you, you do not change. And so may we rest our faith, continue trusting in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.